Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin with our top story. According to people familiar with the matter, President Donald Trump is considering pushing back the deadline for imposition of higher tariffs on Chinese imports by a full 60 days as the world's two biggest economies try to negotiate a solution to their trade dispute. Joining us here in New York, I'm pleased to say, is Chris Morangi, Gabelli Fund's co-chief investment officer. Good morning to you, Chris. Good morning. Glad to be here. Let's talk about the prospect of a grand bargain between the Chinese and the United States. Your view? Unlikely. Um, I think we get a, a a minor bargain, perhaps, that kicks the can down the road, uh, avoids the uh, tariffs uh, coming in on March 1st. Um, but beyond that, I don't, I don't think we get nearly the scope that uh, the president is looking for. Something we've discussed on this program over the last couple of days is how difficult it is to position yourself for the political story and financial markets. It seems to me that short-term sentiment is somewhat geared to whatever comes out of the president's mouth next on trade or perhaps even the government shutdown as well. How difficult is it to price the politics of Washington, D.C.? And should you even bother trying? Yeah, listen, politics are always part of the investment mosaic. They've been a little bigger part of the investment mosaic uh, over the last couple of years, couple of months in particular. Um, but yeah, the, the market is clearly looking to put the trade issue uh, behind it, whether we get a, a grand bargain or not, and uh, move on to the, fun, the real fundamentals of earnings. Let's get to the earnings. An earnings recession, that is the base case for a few people out there looking ahead to the earnings here in the United States of America. What is your base case, Chris, yeah, just so, in terms of the earnings? So, so we're you know about halfway through uh, the fourth quarter earnings season. Earnings in general have been pretty good. Outlooks, I would say, yeah, would support the case that uh, growth is going to be quite muted in 2019. So you see some, I think we'll see some earnings growth, uh, but nothing obviously like we did uh, in 2018, which was powered in part by, of course, the tax cuts. We've seen some great earnings from some really significant companies in the last 24 hours, Cisco being one of them. And together with the earnings, they come out with a boost to their buyback program, $15 billion additional boost to the buyback program. What do you make of the politics of buybacks in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, so clearly the Democrats are going to make income inequality a campaign issue uh, in the next election. And they're trying to attack it in a number of different ways, including wealth tax, higher marginal rates, and, and buybacks. I think the, the misconception around buybacks is that the money that goes into buybacks just goes into a vault somewhere or gets burned in the street, when the reality is that when we sell into, when we sell a, a harvest a, a, an investment and sell into a buyback or sell to another investor, the money gets redeployed into higher and better mm -hmm. uses. And that uh, is what uh, leads to productivity growth and growth in the economy. Coca-Cola just came out and headlined 4% earnings growth. I remember 18 months ago, two years ago, Honeywell came out and said 8% earnings growth. It was a buoyant revenue growth. Does your world change with low single-digit revenue growth? Yeah, that's the world that we live in based on, yeah. uh, based on you know, population and, and productivity growth, which ultimately drive real growth. Um, so, you know, companies are trying to boost that by improving margins, and we're probably sort of at the late innings in that, uh, and obviously through buybacks. This question came up this weekend. What does that do to companies that can develop double-digit revenue growth? It makes it... Makes them, makes makes them more them valuable. Then how much on a PE multiple do you take that? If a given 20 multiple 
How much do you gross up the PE multiple because they can do double-digit revenue growth? Yeah, I mean, cl- clearly the companies, there is a, a scarcity of growth, and that has driven uh, some of the valuations that we've seen around the, the FANG, for example. And as I mentioned earlier, I think it, it also drives M&A. Uh, companies that have strong balance sheets are going to look to buy growth. Well, let's talk about the buyback story a little bit more because you've touched on it and I think it's really important. Is there any evidence whatsoever that suggests that buybacks are done at the expense of investing in R&D? Any evidence whatsoever? Not that I've seen. And I would say, I would go further and say that I think that it's more likely that money ends up in the vault of a company or getting burned in the street, per per se, by a company if they're not allowed to buy back stock because... um, you know, they're more managements are more prone to, to waste the money. And, and ultimately, what the Rubio proposal is, is a tax increase, a corporate tax increase. And he is implying essentially that the uh, federal government is a better capital allocator than the private sector, which is contrary to a lot of Republican well, thought. Co- contrary to the lot of thought of the uh, individuals listening to this program, I'm sure, as well. The broader issue no you've touched on, you, you agree that the government is better at distributing capital than than financial private actors? Valentine's Day. I'm in love with everyone. You're in, you're in love with the government? Yeah. No. <laughs> okay. Big government. big government? Big I government. I love big government. You're long big government. I love Valentine's Day. Oh. I'm long big government. Okay. Well, happy Valentine's Day to you. The broader issue, quite clearly, is wealth inequality. And when that becomes the broader issue, I'm just wondering whether capitalism and financial markets get caught up in this and how we need to think about this really key issue going into 2020, Chris. How do you think about it? Yeah, so I I think you saw some of that late last year in the multiple, right? The earnings are going to be what they're going to be, and then you put a a multiple on that, and that multiple reflects a a lot of factors, uh, including expectations about interest rates and and growth and productivity. It also has some embedded expectations about what the political environment is going to be. And if it's going to be worse, if it's going to be more hostile to capitalism, then you probably should require a, a higher... Uh, equity premium. Uh, in other words, put a lower multiple on those earnings. Really? And that's something we should be thinking about doing now, as opposed to something that may come up and uh, may be more relevant next year. Well, I think it's, it's, it's something always worth reflecting upon. It's something that we reflect upon. Um, you know, we don't, uh, uh, you know, amongst many other factors. And, well, but, I, but I think the market did think about that in, in uh, late last year. Well, that's what I find interesting about all of this. There's, there's new uncertainties to think about. There always are. Whenever you're looking at financial markets and financial market history, there is always something new to worry about. And it was only a couple of months ago that it was almost seen as sufficient. We can just get through all of this if we just get some kind of trade truce and the Fed backs away. That would be sufficient for risk markets to perform. Is that enough anymore? Well, there's a, yeah, there's always another hurdle to jump. Um, you know, if we get beyond the trade deal, I'm sure the focus will return to, to Brexit, Italy, slowing growth in China, etc., yeah, but even within what I hear is Marenghi Caution and is a value shop at Gabelli, what I'm hearing is be in the markets, understand it's not going to be a bang-up year, but you got to participate because the cash is going to keep coming down the income statement. Is that yeah, right? That's exactly right. I mean, listen, over a long period of time, um, if you look at the chart, if you look at the Ibbotson data going back, you know, 80, 100 years, market generally rises over time. Mm-hmm. And it's based on, again, population growth, productivity growth, and uh, right. and you stay in the market and and you continue to grow your assets. John, is there a publicly traded Premier League soccer team? Is there one that you can buy shares in where you can actually make money? Manchester United's listed. Okay. Well, this gentleman here is the largest shareholder of the Atlanta Braves baseball team. Wow. As well. Explain to our audience the dazzlement of Donaldson and company down in Atlanta. 
<laughs> well, our clients are the largest shareholders of the, of, <laughs> of the Braves. So the, the Braves are a public company. It's actually a tracker stock uh, controlled by John Malone. It's Liberty Braves. And uh, the attraction is the same attraction that a lot of other wealthy people have to sports franchises, which they're, they're great stores of value. Um, they've got a lot of secular uh, tailwinds behind them. Um, millennials love do they to deploy go out. cash to you and your shareholders how do they do they do that? not pay a dividend they do not buy back stock today uh, they are uh, uh, deploying cash in uh, I guess what you'd call R&D which is buying new players and which investing is a in second talent. baseman that can you know that's right make the cutoff and we're very hopeful for the season this year but you know the value of that team I, I, is, this is CFA Institute level two though, is, is, really. is not I'm, uh, the phrase I'm, I'm very hopeful for I'm the season keep, this I'm trying year. to keep up Tom it's not all that correlated to the performance on the oh, team. Really? Well, yeah, I mean, you look at the most valuable franchise in the NBA it's the so, New York Knicks the Knicks, who have yeah. all of 10 wins this year so um, you know okay, there, there are a lot of other factors but you know, the, what about Celtics up in Boston did they do a public thing did you guys play with that we, we didn't that was a quasi-public but the, there is one other public uh, sports franchise which uh, John should know about which is Borussia Dortmund uh, traded in Germany and yes. I, the stock is not performing oh, well oh you today. sit up oh this is more interesting than the Atlanta Braves well they got beaten up pretty I mean, badly by, by, by your tots last the night the tots by, killed by, him by, I noticed by, by son, son getting it done uh, <laughs> but, but this is important John Furrow I mean if I say to Chris Marenghi, is Mario Gabelli doing the tomahawk chop? We're rooting for the stock. We're rooting for the Yankees, but we're rooting no. for what are you the doing? <laughs> Jane Fonda, the tomahawk chop. It's part of the American fabric. Michael okay. Barr, help us out here, please. Yeah, that's the the old tomahawk, tomahawk chop. Yeah. What? What are they? They go, oh, you know, yeah. they got what, the Indian thing what going. Am I yeah. Doing. Yeah. If you have a chance to go to SunTrust Park, their new park, do it. <laughs> or the BB&T SunTrust Park, whatever it is. Chris Marenghi, thank you so much. Liberty Braves, the largest holding for Gabelli. Tom, the latest data out of Germany is not looking pretty. Barely avoiding recession in the final quarter of yeah, 2018. Yeah, some people saying, yeah, but it's almost recession. Growth's totally stagnating. And for the continent, for the Eurozone, GDP coming in at 0.2% for the fourth quarter. I think the big question for market participants, Tom, is, is that as bad as it gets? Do we stabilise here? Is this an inflection point? Have we bottomed out for European growth? I want to bring in Caroline Look from Frankfurt, Bloomberg Economy and ECB reporter. Let's talk about the economy, then the potential for a policy response, Caroline. Is there a belief that the worst is behind us for the German and Eurozone economy? Hi, John. Um, that's a very good question. You're very right that uh, GDP is the key data point coming out of Europe today. And uh, we had a lot of attention, especially on the German release, um, where, uh, you know, we had the economy stagnating, which was worse than a lot of analysts expected. But if you look at the market's um, reading of, of those figures so far, it seemed that it wasn't enough to, you know, spark another big sell-off in the euro. So the, the story behind that is that um, there are still uh, quite strong underlying fundamentals, yeah. um, and that's what the market is reading into. And the, the economy ministry said as much. They they, they said that uh, domestic demand was still supporting growth in Germany, and any right. weakness that we're seeing right now is, is really due to an industrial recession. Okay, I'll go with that, and maybe that has to fold over to trade. The Commerce Bank CFO this morning alluded to the reality of negative interest rates. Carolyn, look, you are living negative interest rates. What do negative interest rates do to the culture and fabric of Europe and particularly Germany? 
I mean, Germany is uh, famous for not being a fan of negative interest rates. Um, I think at the moment, uh, the focus at the ECB is more um, to, to kind of wait and see uh, how the economy responds to their having capped QE purchases. Um, so ECB officials really haven't said very much about interest rates beyond the fact that they're going to keep them at their current levels through the summer. Um, so I think what they're looking at is, is data releases like the one that we saw this morning and trying to see, you know, is this transitory or is there something more protracted going on? And a lot of that depends on, on trade uncertainties and on Chinese growth. Um, so it's, a lot of it is, is beyond uh, Europe's control. Yeah, but, but John Farrell, I think this is important. I walk down the street in New York and if I see a three-month CD, you know, it's a minuscule yield, but there it is. Caroline, do you walk down the street in Frankfurt and they're, see they're a adver- bank? They're advertising they're, negative rates. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do, they, do they advertise <laughs> negative rates? I'm serious. Uh, they definitely don't. But I did have I did have a, an interesting conversation with a taxi driver the other day. He was asking me when uh, interest rates might be going up. Um, you know, after after I told him what I do, and uh, I, I told him about how the the narrative at the moment was about you know waiting and seeing and seeing how current economic weakness plays out. And he yeah. had no idea that there was any economic weakness going on. And, and that's, that's amazing. You really do have a very strong domestic economy here. You know, you have a very strong labor market. You have growing uh, real income. So he was like, you know what? I have no idea that, that that's even going on because that's that's really a, a separate part but, of the But economy. you guys have touched on something important. We joke about the fact that you don't advertise negative interest rates. The problem is when you look at the German curve, Tom, it's actually really steep compared to the United States. Yes, well said. But as you know, as a bank, you, hey. you borrow short, you lend long, but the banks can't pass on the negative interest rates to the deposit base. They have to absorb the cost themselves. And that's why many people consider this to be a tax on the banks. And what's so important here, folks, for you in America listening to this is Ms. Look is in Germany living this where economists in bow ties writing papers. You're talking about yourself. Yeah, come on, it's (laughs) sterile. What I would say, Carolyn, is it's sterile analysis versus the malaise that Germany's living. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, but as, as as John was already saying, I mean, we don't really feel uh, the impact of that. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really the banks that are absorbing this. And, and you know, that kind of makes sense then in terms of why you often hear this narrative coming uh, from the banks who, who are yeah. complaining more about negative interest rates because you have a very bank-based economy in Europe, right? So for them, it hurts. For the consumer, not so much. I want to pick up on a point that you've made, and I I want to leave it here because I think it's critical. How you untangle the slowdown in Europe, whether it is based on the trade story, the slowdown in China, or whether there's something more domestic taking place that the Europeans can address. Which one is it, Carolyn? I mean, at the moment, it really seems to be more down to external factors. Um, you know, in, in Germany in particular, you're really focused on exports and uh, trade and, you know, the situation with growth in China. Um, but you're right that there is also something to be said about the domestic situation. You know, how can uh, the euro area boost its innovation, its productivity? Um, and, you know, that's something where the ECB has been very vocal about yeah boosting fiscal reforms, um, right. that, that kind of thing. So it's, it's a bit of both, really. 
Carolyn, thank you so much. This thank you, Carolyn. Really, really, really interesting. We look forward to speaking to you when interest rates go positive. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to be like five, ten years, maybe 20. I, I don't get it. Do you I know still that don't get it. This week marks the 20th anniversary of Japan taking interest rates to zero. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and know, it makes you think about Europe and the position that the ECB is in and how long we're going to I, be down here with I, rates this I'm low. I'm going to give you credit, John. I'm looking at a German 10-year point, 110, and you said... What, three or four weeks ago? Whoa, look at that. Yep. And there it is. And with an effect on America. Much, much to talk about uh, this morning. There's a little bit of Brexity news for those who keep up with the soap opera. Uh, the Prime Minister, I guess, has a vote in Parliament today, John. I, I, it blurs over. Anna Edwards is a saint. She really tries to keep up with it. She does keep she, up with it too. Just, I really give I think her the whole team in London cred- does a fantastic yeah. job. And yeah, you try as well. Anna, in, I try, but not like Anna Edwards. You she are a really, Brexit tourist a couple of times a year. I, yeah, that's that's nicely. Pop, pop over there. Just our, we got a Washington tourist. Our, res- our reserve well. chief correspondent of Brexit every now and again over in London. I enjoy it when you go over there. I love your coverage of Brexit. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, well, you know, why don't you bring in Mr. Foy? I'm going to. You okay over there? Yeah, we did equity markets, yeah, so now we're we can gonna, go we're yielding. Gonna, we're going to do fixed wait, wait, income. Wait, is this a setup for you and the real yield? This is so a tease for tomorrow's brief. show. The real yield is on tomorrow. I didn't yeah, know that. 1 p.m. Thank Eastern. You. Aren't you off tomorrow? I am so off. Is, does that mean you've got a big date tonight? Yeah, with afterthought. It's a Valentine's Day date with yeah. afterthought. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's going to be good fun. You booked a restaurant. Yeah, McDonald's, Third Avenue. That's where she wants to go. Maybe First Avenue McDonald's. Matt Freund, great to have you with us. Kalamos Advisors, Head of Fixed Income Strategies and Co-CIO. There is a hope, Matt, that we can engineer a soft landing. What's a soft landing and can we engineer one? So I think we absolutely can uh, engineer a soft landing. I think that uh, my definition is where growth moderates, where the Fed's uh, objectives of keeping inflation under control, keeping employment high, uh, are met. And I think we're on that path. The wild cards, though, are all of the global soap operas that you were talking about and Fed policy itself. Are they going to overdo it? And so far, we don't think they have. Any signs of something evolving that would encourage the Federal Reserve to come back in and pull a 180 in the way they've pulled a 180 over the last couple of months? Sure. Well, I think people have really misunderstood what the Fed did. I I, I think the Fed um, did the right thing in December. They raised rates. The market was expecting a hike sometimes in December or January. Where they got it wrong was the communication afterwards. And I think we're at a stage now where... If risk assets continue to do well, if the economy here domestically uh, gets some traction, um, I I think it's quite possible that the Fed will be back raising rates later in the year. If things, if that doesn't happen, I think we're going to see a long pause. You you had such a long history in the business, and then you joined this magnificent Columbus out of you know out of Illinois, out of Chicago, Naperville, and and all that. And and you guys own what I'm going to call the early derivative terrain of fixed income, synthetic things and goofy things, if you you will, within fixed income. You guys are decades out in front on all that. John Calamus wrote the book. He wrote the book on this. He literally invented the book, folks, on some of the odd things in fixed income. Is it a full faith in credit market? 
which is what we quote all the time, or our listeners, are they missing a true yield opportunity away from government paper? So I think they absolutely are. One of the messages that we try to give is that it is not just one bond market. It is a market of bonds. And in any given day, there are sectors that we like and we think have opportunity. There are sectors that are overvalued and that we, we think you want Let's to- start with the overvalued. Where, do our, where does our audience need to run from right now? So I think the biggest question marks in my mind are the weaker part of the investment grade market. Uh, we've seen tremendous growth there. A lot of companies issuing debt to buy back stock. Uh, we think that there's potentially a lot of problems there when the market- uh, when So the you're going cycle. to quality is the opportunity. Well, so it's really a barbell approach because I think on the other side, the high yield market gets tarnished in this whole credit problem. High yield has been very well behaved. There's a handful of deals yeah. that we don't like that maybe the covenants were too far, but really the high yield market is also still healthy. Well, let's talk about the dividing line between investment grade and high yield. Triple Bs and double Bs. That spread is as tight as it has been for the last decade. What's the story in the price action and that spread right now? Yeah, so I would tell you that it's, it's hard to speak in large generalities, and here's why. You can find um, single B bonds that are much tighter than double Bs. You can find investment grade wider than double Bs uh, or, or single Bs, and so it's really name-specific and sector-specific. What I'd guide you to is that well-known names, decent liquidity, good business plans, they're those are still relative, in our mind, very attractive three to five years. It's some of the esoteric stuff where you can get into Well, let's trouble. go into the triple Bs and go a bit deeper. Maybe sector-specific, maybe even company-specific, if you'll allow us to go there. There is a concern that a lot of those companies have massive debt loads that leverage has been picking up, and they're going to drop down into high yield, into junk, fallen right. angels. Right. That's sitting on this market, this big concern, the triple B universe, which has become bigger and bigger and bigger. Can the C-suite engineer a turnaround where they can defend their credit rating. Are you hopeful that can happen? Oh. And where are you hopeful that is happening? So I, I think that uh, the message went out uh, last year in the second half that this idea that you can borrow forever to buy back stock is is a, a strategy that you need to yeah. uh, rein in a little bit. And we think that we're <clears throat> seeing that. So I think- right. No, no, continue. Please. No, so so yeah. so your point's really a good one, and um, we think that that activity is going to uh, soften, and we think that uh, you know, for, for on the equity side, uh, you know, you heard Doug before. I mean, that's a source of buying that I don't think is going to be there until balance sheets are right. are repaired. The rough math. Um, so the triple B market, the weak triple B market is about two times the high yield market. And about half of that, 40 to 50% of that has what used to be when I started right. in the business, high yield statistics from leverage. Wow, that's, that's actually some really important math. I, I'm gonna suggest John Kalamas did not invent, invent the loan market, the senior loan. John, what was he up for last year? Peak of the market, everybody couldn't sell this stuff fast enough. Leverage loans. Leverage yeah. loans, that's yeah. right. I mean, your thoughts on what everybody was talking about six months ago, is it all clear? Uh, so I, I think leveraged loans can be a very attractive investment. Going from high yield to leveraged loans could make sense. Why? Go, uh, well, so leveraged loans are 
generally top of the credit stack. Uh, so they're going to get paid back first. To the extent that there are covenants, they generally have them. Uh, and they're a, a floating rate instrument. If you're worried about rates still going up, the problem is going to be the people who are stretching from the investment grade space yeah. going into loans because it can have a very different return characteristic. So it's de-risking from the high yield side, but it's taking more but risk. But you have to be so active about doing this. You and, do. And I'll, and I'll say why, Tom, and I think this is really important. We often hear a lot of people say, this is secured, you're higher up in the capital structure. That's great, so long as you've got something beneath you. The worry is in leveraged loans is there are so many loan-only companies now where you think you are yeah. up in the capital structure, but you're it because there's nothing below yeah, you. Yeah, so you have to turn around and see if there's anybody back in back of you in the line. And that's absolutely right. So that's, that's a newer development, and that's something that we're very cautious in. You're very cautious in that. So, so well, so, when I say so, cautious, so it's name-specific, but you okay. don't... You, so, so basically again, you're saying don't buy the index. Don't no, buy some passive not. fund that tracks You do that not tracks want to index loans. high yield or loans. It's idiosyncratic. There are yeah. sectors to like and not like. Let's do some math. How much yield can we pick up with a Kalamos approach off of what the perceived yield is of the market? Because uh, I think people don't realize they can pick up more than 50 basis points, half a percentage point of, so are of you, yield. Oh, sure. So, um, so the high yield market today is yielding seven, seven and a quarter, depending on the yield. We right. generally yield a little bit more than that. We take a very bond by bond approach. Uh, so more like seven and a half, you have to deduct fees. So right sure. now today, after fees, you're probably talking something in the mid sixes yeah. that, that we can give. The great news here is that you don't have a lot of duration if you're worried about that. Uh, the Where's the duration point? Because uh, if you're picking up, we're picking up 300 basis points, right? Yeah, so the, the duration of the high yield market is generally a three to four year sort of market. I think, John, I think that's the number one thing about the real yield tomorrow on Bloomberg Television. People think high yield is 20 year paper. Do you want to come to the editorial meeting? I, no, I don't need to come Actually, to the editorial the shorter meeting. Duration I've of never high, been invited. The, short, the shorter duration of high yield really helped the market yeah. last year. Yeah. It, it sure yeah. did. And then the, on the other part, the duration of the investment-grade yeah. market is the longest that it's almost ever been. Right. I always go back to 89 because that's when I started in the business, and it's almost never been longer than it is today. Are you going to be here tomorrow? Uh, no, actually, I'm flying back. He's done the show before. Oh, I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> he is a guest of Matt, Bloomberg that Real was Yield. so brilliant. I emailed McKinnon, who does all of our social media, and said, please put Matt Freund out in the podcast what? today. It's my that pleasure. was a clinic. That was ab Folks, if that's what this is all about, is talking to people that really inform in advance uh, the dialogue. Matt Freund with uh, Kalamos of uh, Chicago and of Illinois. Definitive Bond House. This is a joy. Mona Mahajan is with Allianz Global Investors, rather, Allianz Global Investors. And what's cool about her is she has one of the most coolest double majors of any school in the world. She's got the Wharton's economics, like that's a big deal. But the magic, the pixie dust down at Wharton is to dual major economics and computer sciences. I mean, there's very few. Mona, how, how did you get through that grind? Oh, thank you, Tom. Great to be on, first of all, and happy Valentine's Day. Um, that was quite a grind, doing that dual degree and, and squeezing it in four yeah. years. Uh, anything since then has not been as challenging. Give us the mathematics or the organizational structure of the chaos out of December in the equity markets. If you do a matrix analysis on it, you can't do it, can you? 
that was very unexpected, that December move across the board. So yes, I don't think any models predicted that, although the quantitative analysis may have uh, exacerbated it. So. So, Mona, how about, how about the January rally as you put the, the, the December pullback in context of what we've seen so far in, in 2019? How do you square that peg right there? It seems like the volatility there was just extraordinary. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. Uh, the December pullback, so 20% down, uh, peaked a trough in the S&P, followed by almost a complete reversal of that from December 24th to where we are today, about up 17%. Um, you know, what what I'd say is the December pullback, a lot of that had to do with U.S. recession fears um, and recession fears that were probably early and somewhat unwarranted. Now, the pullback from that, you know, we've, we've recovered almost all of it, um, but I think the next leg up, the next 5 to 10%, will be a little bit more challenging and a little bit more volatile. We obviously still have to climb a few walls of worry, not only from the geopolitical side, but from the economic side. And clearly, you know, tomorrow we'll get government shutdown news. Um, March 1st, we'll, we'll talk trade. March 20th, another FOMC meeting. And then, of course, somewhere in the background there, Brexit has to uh, secure itself or finalize at the end of March. So we're watching all these events pretty cl uh, closely as we move on through the next few weeks. So, Moni, you mentioned some of those macro items, and they seem to have been you know, one of the components in the December slide. How much do you think um, they really drove December. And then conversely, maybe we're getting some light at the end of the tunnel as it relates to trade deals and government shutdowns. And how much is that impacting kind of what is going on in the markets today? It seemed to be pretty pronounced. Yeah, you know, I, I do think that the markets have priced in or have climbed some of these walls of worry one by one. So we are seeing, you know, on the shutdown front, President <clears throat> Trump has said he will likely sign some uh, committee resolution tomorrow. On the trade front, we're getting pretty positive feedback. You know, I think the fact that President Xi is actually meeting with some of our U.S. delegates out there um, adds a note of, you know, gravitas to the whole process, adds some real, you know, hope as well. So I think that's, that's <clears throat> a positive. And I think, you know, given what's happened with retail sales clearly this morning, I, I do think the Fed, you know, for right. clearly for a March 20th uh, FOMC meeting is, is off the table. So um, those are that's a pretty positive background for markets overall, and I think that's what we're seeing. Right. Um, you know, every time you get this kind of move, you always have to worry about it. Markets don't go in this kind of straight line forever. So uh, we are cautious about some profit-taking right. that may occur. The big institutional call right now is everybody's on board EM after an ugly 2018. Mm -hmm. Is Allianz on board EM, and can you do that with dollar strength? A great point on the dollar strength. So, you know, our, our general view coming into the year was that looking globally, we had a somewhat of a barbell approach. So on one hand of that barbell was the U.S., which remains kind of the best on the block in terms of the developed market, at least, and, and clearly compared to what's happening in the European economies. The other hand of that barbell was China in particular, and then selective EM. Uh, part of that story was, you know, not only the trade progress, but clearly some of the fiscal stimulus that's being injected in China in particular, and valuations were pretty attractive, supported by, you know, a dollar you know, at least the, the story was the, the dollar may stabilize this year, even weaken. Um, what we've seen clearly, at least in the last month, the dollar has been up almost 9%. Um, 
when the Fed kind of paused or reversed, we did see some dollar softening or dollar weakness, but that quickly reversed when the rest of the world followed suit. So we saw surprise rate cuts from, you know, Bank of Australia, Bank of India, you know, Bank of England followed suit. And so the Fed is now not the only one on the block, you know, pursuing this somewhat easing strategy. And so I think that's kind of creating some more dollar strength. And so clearly, one of the tailwinds for the EM story is now kind of being taken off the table. And so we're watching that carefully. EM's had a great run already. Um, So I do think, uh, you know, for it to go up another leg higher, we need not only a a decent resolution on trade, um, a decent, you know, the, the fiscal stimulus to start kicking in, but perhaps some more stabilization in the dollar. Simona, just real quickly, 20 seconds. How important are earnings here with the Fed on the sideline? What, you know, maybe have an earnings trough here in the first quarter. How closely do you need earnings to really support this market? Yeah, you know, I think earnings will be critical going forward for this year. Um, clearly, Q1 will be soft, and we've seen estimates already come down. We're actually um, uh, positive on that, that they've come down to now, I think, about negative 1.2% for Q1. Um, what we're really watching is on a year-on-year basis, our call is for 4 to 6% earnings growth uh, for 2019. That number has actually yeah. come down quite a bit um, from, you know, early last year to even the end yeah. of last uh, end of 2018. So if we can get that, we do think uh, mid-single-digit equity returns are feasible, you know, 4 to 6% earnings growth plus uh, 2% dividend yield and perhaps some multiple compression. So we remain hopeful for that that outcome this year. Mona, thank you so much. Mona Mayesian with us with Allianz Global uh, Partners. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.